and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Thank you. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to hear from your word, from you, and we eagerly expect great things, for your word is truth, Lord, and the power of your word is communicated by your spirit, and through your people assembled in your, um, in your name, you have promised your presence, Lord. And so this moment, as we Glean, glean a few small things from this small passage. I ask that your spirit would work faith and love and hope in these people this morning, in us, Lord, as we strive side by side for the gospel and for your name. Lord, we come to you in no way deserving this grace to be given from you to us deserving only to be left in darkness. But in your light, Lord, do we live. In your word, do we see what is true. Help us now as we open these scriptures, I pray in your name. Amen. <clears throat> when we go and open the scriptures and we read something from the Word of God, be it in our private devotions or with our family devotions or in the house of the Lord, one of the things we ought to be in a habit of doing is asking ourselves, has this truth, though I know it, do I know it as I ought to? That is, has this truth really come to grip me or do I just have a piece of head knowledge after I've read the Word of God? Is it something that is true, or is it something that is merely fact? Because if it is true, then it is true indeed, and our hearts ought to be subject to it. Paul tells us knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. It is one thing to know something about God. It is quite another to love God. Our passage this morning is obviously talking about this great commandment to love God and to love neighbor. And as we'll see, there's some things perplexing about the way in which it's given to us in this text. But this is, I think, central in that there is two ways to know a truth. And one way puffs up and another way edifies. Another way leads to salvation and to life and the opposite of that is merely pride and arrogance. And so we ask when we come to God's word, has it gripped us? Has the word of God been our surety? Have we seen Christ? Have we seen his forgiveness? Have we come to know our guilt before the law? This is the question. It's an abuse of scripture 
to scrutinize the facts without subjecting our hearts to its power. One of the ways we guard against this, that is one of the ways we guard against going to the scriptures and making it merely about fact, is to read it rightly and to understand not only what that text is saying, but what it is employed to do by the Holy Spirit. What is it sent forth to do? And the way we see that is by looking not only at what the text says, but in the context in which it's given. There's, there's a narrow truth which says this is what the text means, and there's a broader context in which it's employed. It's, it's delivered and sent out to do something. And we must see both of those things for the Word of God to come and have its effect on us. And I think this text today is particularly so. If we were to look merely at the command that Jesus gives, and particularly if we were to see this as presented in the books of Luke and Mark, we might walk away with something of a, of a warm and fuzzy. Well, this is a good thing to know. The law is summarized in this way, love God and love neighbor. And it seems like maybe the, maybe the Pharisees have turned a corner here. Maybe they, uh, they are seeing the truth of God and they're just coming to marvel at the wonders of his law. And we might walk away with a warm and fuzzy thinking, oh, this is good. This is good. But I would challenge you today that this text here is not meant merely to give you a bare fact that the great commandment is love God and love neighbor. It's employed as a vehicle for you to worship God, particularly to bring you to Christ. The greatest commandment in the Bible requires the great Savior of our souls who met this commandment on our behalf. So let's see this together. Let's remember that broad context that we're coming to. We're rapidly approaching a climax in the book of Matthew, where Christ has ascended this hill of Jerusalem, and he's reaching a point, a feverish pitch, with these religious leaders who are coming to him to test him, to challenge him, to ensnare him in his words. And we're coming to a point where Jesus is about to usher a fire of, of condemnation and woes to these hypocrites. If you look ahead in, in chapter 23, you will see woe after woe after woe delivered to these people. And this woe comes to each one here who would be religious externally, would claim to love the Lord and would fail to see their own need of a Savior, would fail to see their guilt before the law of God, would demand external goodness from his neighbor without seeing his own fault before the law of God. But there is another mountain that we will see. After ascending this hill of the Lord, this, this type, this picture of Zion, which is Jesus going to Jerusalem and finding it wanting, finding these Pharisees not walking in the way of truth, there is another mount. It is the Mount of Olives. And there in chapter 24, Jesus will bring his disciples to it. And they will be taught at his feet, equipped for the trial to come. They will be given much strength and hope at the feet of Christ. But for these religious leaders, the passage we're coming to today is perhaps that final instruction which they will receive before what is at this point already anger turns to violence before they lay hands on the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, and kill him. You see, in this passage, Jesus gives them this last response to their question. 
Then he gives them a question and they're unable to answer it. And from that point on, they will betray him and they will lead him to the cross. And so, with this in mind, we ought to look earnestly and eagerly, what is Jesus trying to say? Do you see Jesus this morning? That is the question before us as we come here. Brothers and sisters, we are those who have been taken to the Mount of Olives. We want to be ready in our reading to embrace Christ. This text before us today is the final test brought before these men. And for your heart and for mine, if we are yet in our sins, it may be the final text brought to us. But we are not of those who draw back, but of those who persevere to the saving of our souls. So let us look to see Christ in this text. Remember, Psalm 24 asks this question, Who shall ascend the mount of the Lord? Who shall ascend the mount of the Lord? Who shall go up and worship God on his holy mountain and be part of his house? And it answers, not the chief priests or the scribes or the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the elders, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, the lamb who is tested and found spotless without blemish before his slaughterers for the salvation of many, with him up the Mount of Olives go fishermen and prostitutes and tax collectors. That is us here this morning. If we are sinners saved by Christ. Recall what these men are asking then. We ought not to think of this question as an innocent question coming from the mouth of a, of a child or a lamb, but this is a question brought to him by his accusers. Do you remember that context? We're on the third accusation. First, we saw that Jesus was politically and ethically above reproach, being the very image of God. He renders to God the worship that is due to God. He submits himself to Caesar as one to whom the Father has given a sphere of authority, Though the Pharisees tried to confront him with this and say, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Jesus thwarts that dilemma and says, look, the image of God is on you. Render to God the things that are God and render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. The Sadducees come and they think they have an opportunity now and they're going to say, well, look, the law of Moses isn't even compatible with the resurrection. And Jesus says, you you haven't read your scriptures. God is the God of not the dead, but the living. (laughs) And so Jesus is here shown to be, he's shown to be uh, um, astute to that, that eschatological reality of earthly things, and particularly of, of marriage. His is that marriage by which all other marriages are subsumed and, and, and uh, brought out of and even dissolved before the great marriage, which is Christ. God, the living God, is a covenant God to his people, and we will be with him one day. And from these two tests, now the Pharisees come and they think, ah, I, th- I have an opportunity. The Sadducees have been defeated. Let me come now and bring this question. And so they ask, from this we are going to see that Jesus is the great word of God, greater than the law of Moses. So this context, this context then is this, the hypocrisy of the self-righteous and the perfections of Christ. Those two things are what we are seeing. The hypocrisy of the self-righteous and the perfections of Christ as we look to this commandment. And so they ask, this this young man, this scribe, this lawyer, it's the the same thing there, comes and asks, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? By asking, what is the great commandment? What is What is he asking? 
How does Jesus respond? Well, he says very plainly, very clearly, what do we read? It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. What does God require? But to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. What does this mean? What does it mean to love the Lord your God? Well, commonly we, we see that Jesus says this is the summary of the law. We could look to the law and see these things expounded for us. That is, you could look and, and see the one who loves God keeps his commandments, does he not? Isn't this what we read in, in John 14, 15? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. To love God is to keep his commandments. You cannot say I love God and not keep his commandments. It's false. It's false. What, are, what has God commanded? Think of, think of the t- first table of the law. God says, you shall have no other gods before me. That is, that is idolatry. You shall not be an idolater. You shall not worship other gods. But that's not, that's not merely setting up a graven image. No, idolatry is passions of the flesh. It is covetousness, as Colossians says. It is desiring things and setting them up in your heart as supreme above God. Having affections that go out to your own pleasures and your own passions before God's glory. Brothers, I... This very week, in Wednesday, I was confessing with, uh, with my brother and sister. This very thing happened uh, within our own, our own marriage this week. I had my heart set on something for several weeks. I, I very much wanted to do it, and I think there was, a, there was difficulty, and my wife said, no, I, I really want you home. And it wasn't, it wasn't easy for me to give up, but it was silly. It was stupid. I had made an idol out of this thing. Because God had first and foremost called me to be a dad, called me to be a husband, and yet I wanted to pursue my own pleasure and my own own desires. I had set up an idol in my heart. I did not love the Lord my God. The second commandment, to love God in truth. That is, you shall have no images before me. If you think about that, it's, it's putting before your face something of your own creation and saying, ah, this is what God looks like. I will make, a, make a, a painting or a sculpture or I will erect something and this will be God. The, uh, the children of Israel put together a golden calf and they didn't say, ah, oh, this is a new God. They said, this is the God that led you out of Egypt. This is what he looks like. And they made a God in their own image. They made a God after what they think God looks like. The second commandment, how do we love the Lord our God with all our heart? It's to love him truly, according to the truth. Who he is, not who we think he is. Not by some picture we can put in front of him. Not by some contrivance of our own imagination. We can can often come encounter encounter people who say they love God, and when when you speak with them, you will find out, do not love God, not the God revealed in the scriptures. They love a God who is powerful in in some respects, but is is weak in others. A God who is holy in maybe half respect, but is sinful in others. 
a God who is more like them than the God of the Bible. But this is not just out there. This is us, is it not? God wouldn't do that to me. God has no right to claim this part of my life. Does he? Doesn't he? (laughs) God has a right over all aspects. Is God not sovereign? Is he not holy? Do we not know God according to the truth? Or more particularly to you today, as, as a Christian, who is the image of God? Is it, it is Christ. Hebrews says he is the exact image of God in the express picture of his nature. Do you want to know God? Look at Christ. Look at what he did. His life lived. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength in your mind drives you to the cross. It asks you to feed the poor. Not asks, it demands you to feed the poor and the hungry. To have no place to lay your head. To go after what is right and true. Forsaking mother and brother and sister and father for the sake of Christ. This is what Jesus did for us. To the point of death, he did not love merely his own Flesh. He did not love us merely as much as he loved his own flesh. He loved us to death, brothers and sisters. The name of God is to be revered. To love God is to not take the name of God in vain. That's not merely not putting on our lips something which is vile to use the name, the, the grammar in a slang or, or perhaps a misguided way. To take the name of God goes beyond that. That is, if God is your God, would it be in vain? If God is your God in in banner, in title, if he has set his affection and love on you, if you have said, that is my God, he has redeemed me, is that in vain? Do you claim the Lord your God in vain? Has he put his name over you in vain? Will you live like the world and claim to be God's? That's what these chief priests and leaders had done, is it not? We are his children. Yet, they would bind burdens on people that they could not bear. They thought of themselves as righteous. They had no room for a savior. They did not recognize the Christ when he came. They clung to power. They feared the crowds. The name of God was in vain upon that people. We might even think of his Sabbath command. Prime in the Old Testament, the, the, the pinnacle of that covenant was, of the Mosaic covenant, was the Sabbath command to honor God on his day. To give to God what he requires as our creator, our redeemer. This is to love God with all the heart and soul and mind. But that's not enough, is it? Christ didn't leave it there. He did not say, love God. He said, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Brothers and sisters, it's not enough for us to merely say, love God. We must be given a second command to even know what the love of God is. See, we would think, I would think in my own mind, the love of God is something I can render on Sunday morning or something that I can do in the shower as I pray. But to love God is to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so 
we have another six commands. Mother and father are to be honored. Murderers are not to be permitted. Adulterers, the affections of our heart, those who steal, those who lie, those who covet, all have found their neighbor to be something to be possessed, to be mastered. All have loved themselves more than their neighbor in these commands. And Christ heightens the level of the law, does he not, on the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, you think, just because you have heard it said, do not kill, but I say to you, if you have, if you have hated your brother in heart, you have already killed him. If you look at a woman or a man with lustful intent, you have already committed adultery in your heart, brothers and sisters. God requires of you love, not only love for God in a way that doesn't touch love for your neighbor. That would be to make God someone who he is not, but love for God. And the second is like it, love for neighbor. We must love those whom God has given to us, our children, our parents, our actual physical next-door neighbors, our church brothers and sisters, the brothers and sisters of other churches, those we encounter on our, on our work, on the plane ride, wherever we may travel or incur people, the, the soccer game, the, the social event, each one is an image-bearer of God. And to each one we must love as we would love ourselves, that is, our own flesh, as we would nourish and cherish the things that we use to provide for ourselves, we would give that to one another. This is what God requires in his law. And to heighten it, brothers and sisters, look, look at how it is said. Matthew chapter 22, it is said, you shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is not a command that can be somehow collectively done or just set out there. This is done by you. It is demanded of you personally. To measure up to God's law, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart. You must love your neighbor as yourself. Your soul and strength and mind must be given to God. Brothers and sisters, this is the greatest commandment. This is the summary of God's law. But this is the hook. This is the twist. If this is the greatest good, if this is the greatest commandment, if this is the best thing you could say about a man or a woman, he loves God and loves his neighbor as himself. If that's if that's the highest and greatest thing, it is also the greatest and vilest evil when we fall short of it. It is also the most desperate thing to say, he does not love God with his heart and soul and mind. He loves himself more than he loves his neighbor. That's a vile thing to say of a person of a person created in the image of God. That is the worst thing that can be said of someone. So I ask, what do you think was intended by this 
question. Why did this scribe bring this question to Jesus? Why? It's interesting, actually, the commentators are, are not unified and clear. There's some, there's some questions. Why? Some, the other, the other uh, challenges brought are, are sort of clear. The first, you know, pits the Pharisees against the Herodians. Should I pay taxes to Caesar or not? One way or another, Jesus is trapped. Of course, Jesus is greater than their schemes. The second with the Sadducees, either, either he's going to agree with the law of Moses or he's going to agree that there's a resurrection. Either way, the resurrection, he who claims to be the resurrection cannot also uphold the law of Moses. He's trapped. But no, he isn't. But this one, as you read it, it's clever. It's sly. I don't know, you might say. I don't know what he's driving at here. It seems like a simple question. What's the greatest command? Some, some will say, some will say, uh, you know, it was the written law versus the oral law, and the scribes had their oral law, and they were pitting the two against one another, and they wanted Jesus to pick sides. Perhaps, perhaps our text doesn't make that explicit. Some will say, well, maybe it's the weighty things against the insignificant things. I think that's closer to the truth. But again, our text doesn't, isn't bulletproof on that. Is he here trying to pit one law against another and say, maybe I can, complete, I can keep these and, and let other ones go? Maybe. It could be this. It could be that he is driving at Jesus' uh, repeated accusation that he lightens the law, that he that he makes the law somehow uh, less than what Moses said. Because the Pharisees were always looking at the externals and saying, your disciples don't wash their hands. Your disciples don't obey our Sabbath rules. Your disciples are not fasting. You're eating with tax collectors and sinners. Maybe, maybe the Pharisee here thinks that he can find some fault in Jesus this way. But in any rate, I think this thing is clear. The lawyer comes to Christ with a legal mindset. He comes to him not looking for a savior, but looking to be justified. This is actually more explicit in other, in other uh, accounts of this parable, or of this story, I should say. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Luke first. I want to read that account, Luke chapter 10. Luke sets up what is a very similar account. It's not identical. Luke and perhaps this occurred at multiple times, but you'll notice the similarities. I'm sorry, Luke 10. We read this. Starting in verse 25, it says, And behold, a lawyer stood up, and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replies with a parable. Perhaps... Perhaps this is a, the same account with other details given. I, I, perhaps it's a, it's a different account, but it seems to be a reoccurring thing. 
Mark helps us even more because Mark is almost identical in terms of context in the way that he delivers this particular story. So turn also to Mark with me. Mark chapter 12. As you'll see, there's, there's the question of paying taxes to Caesar. The Sadducees ask about the resurrection, and Mark puts this right before Jesus is, is, asks them, how can the Christ be both David's son and David's Lord? So it's the same context. Mark adds a few more details for us. He says, One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, seeing that he answered the Sadducees well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now, Pay attention to how the scribe responds here. The response isn't recorded for us in Matthew, but listen how the scribe responds. He says to him, Ah, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him, and to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that, he answered wisely. He said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Now this lawyer, he understands truly the law, doesn't he? He understands that there is not all things alike in the law are equally weighty. You can't make up for disobeying the law with burnt offerings and sacrifices. To love the Lord your God is more than all whole burnt offerings. And Jesus is saying, yes. <laughs> yep. Yeah, you understand that correctly. You're not far from the kingdom of God. But this lawyer is yet to understand the significance of what he's saying. This lawyer stands before Jesus, and if you notice the, the tone here, he, he's almost to justify Jesus. Ah, teacher, you are right. I declare you to be right. He says, and he goes on to, to sort of lecture Jesus on, on the significance of the law. And Jesus is saying, yeah, you're not far from the kingdom of God. But he's missing this, this paradigm shift. These two men stand on opposite sides of this law, do they not? Do they not? One man stands condemned under this law and the other righteous. One man in it sees his own, his own righteousness, he thinks. The other one is providing a righteousness. In it. These two men are on opposite sides of this law. See, if the Pharisees could get Jesus onto their side, perhaps they could, they, perhaps they could win some favor. He's good at beating the Sadducees. That would help us with the crowds. If, if Jesus is in agreement with us, if he's in agreement with the law of Moses, but Jesus here doesn't, doesn't deny them. He just points them to himself. Because the very next words of Jesus are, how can David's son be both David's how can the Christ be both David's son and David's Lord? And they have no clue. They don't understand the significance of Jesus standing there claiming to be David's son and David's Lord, the great son of man and son of God, the one who has come to bring deliverance from this law. That The paradigm shift hasn't happened yet. 
They're there thinking that in the law they have righteousness, but in the law they stand condemned before God. Now Jesus' summary of the law here then, as I, as I read it and I put before you this, this um, argument to be read this way, I take the summary of the law here, not a summary that is Concentrate it to make it dilute. He concentrates it so that you would feel the full weight of the law upon one point that you are guilty. Some of us here like to, to hunt, maybe not all of us, but when it's archery season, a lot of time is spent thinking about the, the arrow and how it's going to do on its target, right? And the whole mechanics of an arrow is that it takes the whole weight of the shaft and it applies its force to one particular point. And so you think, how can an arrow, it's not nearly as fast as a bullet, but it does what it needs to do because of the way it has concentrated the whole weight of that force onto one particular point. And I think this is the concentration which Jesus gives when he says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. You understand the significance of what you're saying to one extent, but you have not applied it to your own heart. You have not seen that God's law is not merely something that gives you something to do. It is something that condemns you. Something that condemns you. And so, while we say that, though, we must also understand that summarizing the law doesn't put the law into one conglomerate. It's not as if it's merely loving Jesus still sees ranking priorities within the law, right? He doesn't just say, well, there's one law, love God and love neighbor. He said, no, the first is love God, the second is love your neighbor. It's like it, they hang together, but there is a difference between them. And so we must understand that as we're, as we're looking at this principle, love God and, and love neighbor, they, they hold together. There's, there's a way in which we may at times think that we can, we can divide these two or collapse these two, right? So that maybe loving my neighbor is whatever makes my, my neighbor happy. I can be pleasing to God if I will just do what affirms them and loves them and is kind and charitable to them. But Jesus is saying, no, there's a priority here in the law, and it is duty towards God first. And it is out of that that true love comes. You want to know how to love your neighbor? Love God in truth. Do you want to know how to do what is good? To say what is good to your neighbor? Know what God has said. Love God first. And so while Jesus is not making the law one big mishmash where we might be confused on what love God and love neighbor is, he's also not pitting them against each other. He's not saying, well, love God is of primary importance, but if you can't get that far, at least love the neighbor or, you know, the other way around. He's not pitting these two things against one another, which is always, which is always a, a chance um, for us to do. We, we might think, well, we can navigate these laws. We can do this. We might have that same legal mindset, and this is what I'm driving at. The legal mindset looking at God's law can do similar things unknown to us, right? See, we can, we can take the law and we can weave and, 
and dodge. We can nuance this and we can accent that and we can say, well, yeah, God requires this, but in this situation, maybe this applies. Well, and primary thing is to do this, so I might, I'll, I'll, I'll love God and I'll, I'll leave love to neighbor off for a second, right? We may, we may be tempted to, to think in that way, but Jesus was not a compromised man. His righteousness was not about navigating the law like a, like a lawyer might. Jesus upheld the law in its totality. He completed it in its perfect nature. So while we need to be made to understand the law, we must not pit the law of God against it. We must let it show us our guilt. And this is what I'm driving at. You cannot, you cannot say, well, I am righteous before God. I know it says that, but in this situation, God gives me a pass. It's to say, no, I can't do your will, God. Help me in this situation. Help me in this dilemma. But it is to point us to Christ in those things and to know we live in a sinful world. Sometimes we might not be able to navigate these things like we ought, but we ought to look to Christ who knew how to do this perfectly. We ought not to compromise on what we know God has said so that we can feel warm and fuzzy toward our neighbor, but we, we must not make ourselves the arbiters of truth and make love for neighbor something that is primary, right? We say, well, since I have truth, I'm not going to... I'm not going to bend an ounce. Well, there, there are weightier and lesser matters of the law. There are some things which your conscience has freedom on and some things which not. Some of you, as Paul would say in Romans, some of you are okay with eating meat. You know that you have that freedom, but others of you are not okay. It is not appropriate for you to take what you know to be true and hold it over your neighbor's head and say, you must eat what your conscience would not allow you to eat. There are things that you ought to bind yourself to brother. And yet there are other things. There are weightier matters of the law which you say, brother, I need to show you the truth in this matter. You need to see what, is, what God has said on this. And we must realize that loving God comes first through what God has said and towards our neighbor. And so with this in mind, I want to focus our attention on this in this last section to these things. How, how then do we love God and love neighbor. Well, first, it's not by vain assumptions of perfection or self-justifying delusions of righteousness, but it's by humble trusting in Christ that he is righteous for you. This is the first and foremost way that you love God and you love neighbor. To do otherwise is to say, I can love my neighbor by claiming to be righteous on my own before God which is no good news to your neighbor and is no salvation to you, is no honor to God the Savior and is no good news to your neighbor. First, to love God and to love your neighbor is to trust Christ in his redeeming work on the cross, to come to the gospel. Second, it's not by loving anything else before God. You're convinced that God has said certain things in his word what is needed for life and godliness, you must love God with all your heart and out of that love your neighbor then. And then finally, it is not by indifference to others and their struggles or their scruples, but it is asking, am I free to abstain? Am I free to bind myself in a way for the sake of my brother? Can I not eat that so that my brother would, would 
progress in his sanctification and his walk, then by all means, do it for the sake of your brother. But in so doing, you're doing it out of love for neighbor and love for God and not in contradiction to what God has positively commanded for us to do. With all those things said, though, I do want to turn our attention. The final thing, while I, I, I took us through seeing, okay, the law is, is profound, it is convicting, and my argument is still the same, one main argument, that the greatest law in the, greatest law in the Bible, the great summary of the law, requires a great Savior. That's my main argument today. And I let that stew in your mind for a little bit while I took you on a rabbit trail to show, okay, we're looking at a few other things. We're looking at how this law is applied. But I want to try to drive that home last as we come to this, uh, as we look at this text, the last parts. A few things that in my mind, as I looked at this and I thought, okay, am I being, am I being faithful to the text here? Because Matthew doesn't seem to apply the weight of this necessarily without its context purely on our guilt before the law. It just seems to say, this is what is good. So am I, doing, am I doing justice to what is said here? And there were two things that helped put me over the edge. So I'm going to leave these with you to think about. Okay? First off, the coupling of the words law and prophets. Jesus says, upon all these hang the law and the prophets. Upon this command hangs all the law and the prophets. That coupling only appears a few times in Matthew And the first time it appears is when Jesus in Matthew 5 says, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. That's like, on the starting point of his ministry, Jesus says, look, I am not here to abolish the law. I'm not here to lighten the law. I'm not here to put it aside. I'm here to fulfill it. I'm here to uphold the law and the prophets. And so first thing, first thing you ought to hold in your mind is that as this lawyer comes and says, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, well, it's these two things. Upon them all hang the law and the prophets. You ought to think, oh, the same law and prophets that you came to fulfill? Because that's not the way this Pharisee was thinking, this lawyer. He was not thinking, oh, and therefore Christ is great because he does this. <laughs> he was thinking, oh, you can, I, can be, I can meet that just like you. I know the law just like you. See, we're, we're actually kind of birds of a feather here. We're, we're clever. We, we know God's law. No, Christ is the one who fulfills the law and the prophets. And the second thing I, I put before you for your consideration is this. When he says, upon these hang the law and the prophets, I, just, I found it compelling to me, honestly, this week. That word hang is used only a few times in the gospel and many times in Acts. And it's just the word for hang. But do you know what it's used primarily for? <laughs> Judgment, that a millstone would be hung around their neck and drowned into the sea, in the case of some, or it's used for one who hangs on a tree. You see, Jesus was hung on that tree as the end of the law and the prophets for you. Do you want to be held to the standard of the law and the prophets and the entire righteousness of God? Do you want that to be your ladder by which you ascend to salvation? No, let Christ be the end of that for you. Let his cross be that final concluding act which sets you free from that covenant of works by which you would measure up to elicit favor from God. Let Christ be that final end where he says, when the the law 
put it this way, okay? Another, way, another place that the law and prophets appear is in the baptism of John, which says John was, the law and the prophets were until John. That is to say, they were crying out until John came. The law was demanding righteousness, and the prophets were indicting people for not following it. That is, God is righteous where you are sinner. That's the role of the prophets. That's the role of the law. And it was until John, but when Christ comes, finally someone who keeps the law one who has a clean, clean hands and a pure heart, who has ascended the mount of God and will die. He is the end of righteousness for you. And this is why we are free now not to take this great commandment as a burden in terms of our feeling guilty before it. The guilt is to be cast upon Christ and say, I'm not guilty of it anymore, but the law is to be loved. Christ, you fed the hungry Christ, you gave to the poor. Christ, you bore my burden to the cross. Christ, I would love as you have loved. This is the great commandment. Let's pray. Lord, as you were pinned, hung on that tree, in fulfillment of the law and the prophets, Lord. And in that love, that great love, greater love has no man than that, that you would lay down your life for us, Lord. In that, we have a twofold redemption, Lord. Not only free from its guilt, but also given its righteousness. These things are said of us who are in Christ. Lord, may we love this commandment because it is first and foremost that which drives us to you and out of which we then live that paradigm for all of life to see Christ and to savor him. Thank you for your word. I ask your blessing on it in your name. Amen.